It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays. We're not on Tuesdays anymore. We're on Mondays. Lunes, los lunes a las dos de la tarde. At 2 p.m. Bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape. And mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. En KPFK. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people. Thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. Yesterday was Mother's Day, so I thought I would take the opportunity to ask a few of the mothers in my life who I respect tremendously about what some of the most joyful and challenging aspects are of being a mother. New message. Hi, my name is Barbara, and I am a mother of three, and the best part the most joyous part of being a mom is watching my kids grow every day. The most challenging part of being a mother is having to discipline my kids. It's really hard. Because um, you never know when you have to be the good, when you can actually just be the good guy. Sometimes you have to be the bad guy too and hope that your kids actually um, listen and do as you're actually telling them to do. But that's the most challenging part of being a mother and the most joyous part of being a mother is like I said watching my kids grow every day to replay this message press 1 new message hi this is Anne Marie Russ Graywall the greatest joy of caring for my children is caring for my children after 7 years of Taking care of little boys, I've realized that caring for them is not a means to an end, but is the end. So I found that small moments when they appreciate what I'm doing, when they share my love for things that I value, those are the greatest things, especially when they eat their vegetables from the garden. The greatest challenge, I think, is trying to balance the amount of time I spend doing the things I have to do and trying to find the time to do the things I want to do with them and feeling like there's never enough time. So trying to make the most of whatever time I've got. Happy Mother's Day. New message. Hi, Sarah. This is Tracy. And one of the most challenging aspects of being a mother to three and a half year old twins right now is practicing patience. Um, At the end of the day, I usually think back to moments in the day where I could have been more patient. And uh, one of the things that I'm finding to be most joyous at the moment is their complete honesty. I find this to be so refreshing. And also watching them sleep peacefully at night is wonderful too. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you, bye. New message. 
Hi, my name is Lee. I'm the mother of three and a half year old twins, boy, girl, Axie and Brandon. Um, I would say the most joyous thing about being a mother is being constantly bathed with love and hugs and kisses. Um, when they look at me, they're just so happy to see me, no matter if it's a good day or a bad day or an ugly day or a beautiful day. They just adore me. Um, the most challenging thing about being a mother, I would say, is preparing them for a world that I may not understand, um, that is constantly changing and growing in ways that it's hard for me to conceive at this point. So how do I prepare them to live a joyful, fulfilling life without being without being overwhelmed, I guess. To replay this message, press one. New message. Hi Sarah, I'm Akira from Boro High. So joyous being mother for me is watching my two children play together and enjoy each other's company, their smiles, their sincere unconditional love they give me always. What's challenging is coming home tired from working and not having the energy needed to run around with them and spend the quality time they want. It's challenging taking care of them when they're sick. Being a mother, it's always going to be challenging because no matter how old they are, we're always going to worry for their well-being. You heard from Barbara Lee, who's a mother of three, ranging in age from one year to seven years. From Anne-Marie Ruff Gruel, who is an author and a mother of two boys. From Tracy Powell, who is a photographer and a mother of three-year-old twins. From Helly Lee, who is also an author and a mother of twins, three-year-old twins. From Matilda Vera, who is a bus driver for the Los Angeles Unified School District and the proud mother of a little girl who's just learning to walk, and a son who's in third grade. Happy Mother's Day. For the next part of our show, we return to one of our favorite pieces from a school that's dedicated especially to young mothers. And we hear from Helly Lee and her grandmother's story of raising a family across generations of tremendous hardship. On the northern edge of the San Fernando Valley, in an unassuming office building that is showing its age, sits a one-room schoolhouse administrated by the Los Angeles County Office of Education. The school is flanked by medical marijuana shops, liquor stores, a McDonald's, and a 7-Eleven. Inside, an extraordinary group of young women study for five hours a day while their small children go to an affiliated county-sponsored daycare nearby. I had the privilege of working with these young women recently to tell a story about how they view their roles as mothers. I want to shave my hair bald. Um, I like to sing. My parents came through the Nicaraguan Civil War and genocide. Mm, I like to do nails. 
I'm proud to be Salvadorian Mexican. I'm teaching my son how to dance um, punta merengue and corridos. I love to do makeup, and I also want to cut hair. After I graduate, I want to go to the Navy or to the Marines. I still play with my Barbies. When things build up, I have a bad temper. I feel like school is like freedom. Yeah, I come and I'm like with my friends, like just chilling. Nine to one fifty, we get to be like free again. And then at one fifty, we go and get the kids, and we have to go on mom mode again. <laughs> I couldn't do what I'm doing right now when I had my son, cause like, oh, I have to mature already. I'm a mom. But when I don't have my kid, it's like, oh, I feel I feel like a kid. It's not like we don't think about our kids, like, cause we do. Like, it's some days that I can't wait to go and get my baby, and we get we get help from the school. Like, people come and talk to us and we get an understanding about things that maybe like we're afraid to talk to other people about. Well, my name is Kelly, I'm 17. Um, I'm having my baby within probably a week to three weeks. And I just needed to get my life going so I could finish school a lot easier and take care of my child. I'm an obstetrician. I deal with teen pregnancies all the time. <laughs> um, and I see it all the time, day in, day out. I always tell the teenagers that, okay, you may not have wanted to be pregnant. You are. But however way you look at it, it's a miracle. And we need to make this as best as we can. What do you think about stereotypes towards teen moms? Uh, it's a situation that makes things much more difficult, but it doesn't necessarily make it impossible. And you can, you can come out of this uh, being a great mother, being a great student, and continue being a great individual in the society. But people unfortunately don't think of it that way. When they stereotype, they just put you down and they drag you down and that's the effective stereotype. Instead of coming in and helping and embracing, they push you away. Um, hello, we're outside um, a shop. Uh, it's called VP Prop 215 Patients Welcome. The only reason I wanted to go inside here is because I want to experience what it's inside the shop since I've never been in one. Why is the reason you come to a medical shop? I can't sleep at night. <laughs> I got insomnia. Yeah. Um, why can't you sleep? Because, well, I guess it's, your thing is about stereotype, right? Well, I'm obviously Asian, and you know, my parents have like high expectations for me, and it's like really stressful, you know? I bet you guys smoke weed too, huh? <laughs> Once in a while? No, oh, we're, we're mothers, we, we don't smoke. Yeah, Don't we'll get social workers on us. Yeah? yeah. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we done? Yeah, we're done. Yeah. Thank right. you. Okay, thank you. Our audio postcard from CalSafe Arlita in the San Fernando Valley comes out of Here in the City's work with The Heart Project. 
an award-winning nonprofit that places artists in continuation high school classrooms and is dedicated to promoting educational and developmental success through the arts. Special thanks to Stephen Hardy, Margaret Edwards, and Joanne Manning for making this story possible. If Hong Yong Baek were alive today, she would be 100 years old. She lived at a time of social servitude of women, through the Japanese occupation, and survived the war that brutally divided her country of Korea. All the while, her main purpose in life remained keeping her family intact and her children safe from harm. I sat down with Hong Yong's granddaughter, performance artist and author Helly Lee to talk about the extraordinary story of her grandmother as she has told it in two internationally best-selling books, Still Life with Rice and In the Absence of Sun. Helly reads a passage about the moment her family left Korea when she was just a little girl. Tears trickled down mother's cheek, leaving black rivulets under each eye. She had to keep reapplying her liner and regluing her false eyelashes for the seemingly endless snapshots. Neither grandmother nor mother smiled in any of the pictures. That was the Korean way of posing for the camera. I remember standing in the doorway of the plane and looking down at the people below. Grandmother stood apart from the others, her arms reaching out towards us. Amoni! Amoni! My mother shouted. But the engines roared over her last cry, denying grandmother her daughter's final farewell. With one whoosh of the latch, the door was clamped shut, locking us in and grandmother out. Now, as I look back at those crinkled photos, I realize that grandmother and mother shared a deeper grief. They were separated many times before, but this time an ocean would stretch between them. Would they ever see each other again? And it comes at a point in your book where you realize that things aren't exactly as they seem because your grandmother and your mother have things about their past and history in North Korea that they haven't shared with you yet. I realized that my parents, you know, I originally thought they came to America for education to give their children a future, a better future than the one that they had. But it was also um, the underlying story that they never told us was that they left Korea because there's so much heartache and loss and tragedy that they wanted to forget and leave behind because um, my grandmother had lost her firstborn child, her firstborn son, during the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. I never knew of this story or of this missing son or my uncle till 41 years after she had lost him when I was sitting down with my grandmother talking about her life. And um, the story started emerging. That's when I realized there was so much history that they never spoke about and that there was so much heartache that they were keeping underground so that um, it wouldn't burden the children of America, their grandchildren here, and so that we could have a better life. Where was your grandmother born and when? My grandmother was born in North Korea, which is now North Korea. When she was born, the country was one, like it had been for centuries. Um, she was born in 1912. She was the eldest daughter. She had an older brother and two younger sisters. She was 
she told me that she had gotten married very late in life, which was 22, and she was, you know, her family was embarrassed about that. But um, she was born at a time when women couldn't do much. You know, they were restricted. They lived in their father's home, and when they got married by the person that they were told you know, their father had chosen for them. They moved into their husband's house. And so life was very different for women back then. So she grew up at a time when, and in a place where women didn't choose their husbands and their parents or their father chose their husbands for them. They weren't even allowed to leave the boundaries of their home. They weren't even allowed to step outside. They were carried in a pelican, which is a sedan chair on the shoulders of four men and taken to their new home of their husbands. But you know, my grandmother, even though she grew up in that time as a woman, as a daughter, she always had that spirit, that fire, that curiosity that they always tried to dim a little bit because it was not appropriate for a daughter to have that. But I think it is that will, that desire, that curiosity that had allowed her to survive many wars, to cross the Pacific Ocean, to live to her 90s, to see the world change, and to use a microwave and, all, and a cell phone and all of those things. Um, she has had an extraordinary life. And she's coming from a moment in your book where you talk about her first arrival at her husband's home after she's been married to him and moves in with his family, and she's in charge of lighting the um, the fire underneath the floor to keep it warm in the winter and basically expected to serve her husband's family until there's a moment where she actually realizes that she falls in love with your grandfather? That is such a beautiful story. A lot of marriages, you know, back then, and also still today when your parents tried to match you up and you get married to this total stranger, the chances of you falling in love with your mate is very slim to none. But my grandmother fell in love with her husband, who was a very kind and educated man. And um, he also happened to be a couple years younger than her. So I think that helped out the situation. When they were married in North Korea, in the capital city of Pyongyang, um, that's when the Japanese had invaded their country, and so Koreans were no longer allowed to have their own name, speak their own language. It was very difficult. The whole country was being oppressed and colonized. So he took his wife and um, two little babies to China to live. And there, you know, away from in-laws and Korean traditions that weighed so heavily on women and literally bound our feet. Um, in China, she was able to go into business for herself. She actually owned a restaurant. She, you know, dabbled in opium, which we don't really like to talk about in the family too much. She was became a businesswoman. She became incredibly successful. And my grandfather at one time said, you know, you don't have to work this hard. We don't need all this money. And she said, I'm going to make all this money because there's going to be a day when our country is no longer um, under the rule of the Japanese and we're going to be able to go back and when we go back we are going to go back like kings and queens and l return to our country with our heads held up high. She wanted to take their young family to South Korea where the new industry was. There was a lot of hope but my grandfather wanted to return to his hometown in Pyongyang which was now officially North Korea so they went to North Korea if he had listened to her. <laughs> she wouldn't have ended up in jail as she did. 
Um, my family, my grandmother had made a lot of money in China, so they were now rich landowners. And also, they had recently converted from Buddhism to Christianity, so they had been targeted by um, the party, and they absolutely lost everything. Everything that they had earned and was their family money um, was taken away. And when they had nothing else to give, you know, the party came back and said, well, now we want your husband and your firstborn son, who is 16 years old, to fight in our war against South Korea. And there was a moment at this point where your your mother, the mm-hmm. second oldest child, um, is away at school, and she comes home, and your grandmother has made a decision to leave. Can you talk about that point and what happens after that? My grandmother, after um, she had, she knew the war between South Korea and North Korea was getting bad. It had just broken out that North Korea had attacked South Korea, and so it was full-fledged war. So she sent away her 16-year-old son and her husband to South Korea to, to find shelter and to come back when, you know, the war ended. But the war didn't end. It just kept getting worse and worse. The bombings, the fighting, people were dying in her neighborhood. And so... Um, when my mother was 13 years old, my grandmother told her to pack up, let's go, let's take your younger brothers and sisters. And then they had a seven and nine-year-old boys. And my grandmother also recently gave birth to a baby girl. So she strapped on that baby girl to her back and decided to take all her children across the border into southern territory and to hopefully reunite with her husband and her eldest son and be protected under United Nations forces. So your grandmother walked with her four children through the bombing territory across the border and made it to South Korea? They crossed the border from North Korea to South Korea um, on Christmas Eve. And, and from there, they took a train from the capital of South Korea, which is Seoul, down all the way to the, the base of the peninsula. And in... The city of Pusan, my grandmother actually reunited with her husband, found him, but she never found her 16-year-old son, Youngwoon. She had searched everywhere, high and low. All the churches had bulletin boards with torn notes and pictures and letters trying to find lost ones, Um, but my grandmother never found her son. And it was the story that had stayed in Korea after our immigration to the States because losing a child not knowing whether he had died or lived, just that unknowing was so much torment for my family and especially to my grandmother that when they came to America, they decided to leave the stories behind and never speak again of his name. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City, that's H-E-A-R in the city, dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. I was actually confused because all my life I had assumed my mother was the eldest child and then she had three other siblings underneath her. But as I began to ask my grandmother questions and very annoying about it because I would not let her 
sit quietly. I was so curious. And the more questions I asked, the more my grandmother realized I was very serious about this. And so she released little bits of information here and there. And finally, we started talking about the son that she hadn't seen since he was 16 years old. And I was completely blown away. And I asked her, you know, what had happened to him. And she says she didn't know. And I think that was the greatest grief for my grandmother was the not knowing. But even though she did not know, if there was a possibility that her child was alive, she was going to keep searching for him. So ever since the Korean War, um, the bloody fighting stopped in 1953. Since 1953 to the present day, at that time when I was sitting with my grandmother talking about her son, this was 41 years later, I had no idea that my grandmother had been searching for him for 41 years. And um, she had been writing letters to every politician, missionary, diplomat, president of North Korea in hopes of seeking permission to get into the country to go search for him. But North Korea is not in the habit of or in um, or encourages family reunions or searching of for one's relatives across the border. So every letter always ended in a dead end. And I remember sitting with my grandmother when I was talking to her, I said, you know, Grandma, you know, we're talking about North Korea. We're not talking about China or Cuba, where you still have access to those countries. We're talking about North Korea. And perhaps at this time, it's been so long that you need to put closure to this. And she looked at me and she said, you know, if this had been you, would you had want me to give up on you? She said, this is my child. I would never give up on my child until I know, until I hold something of his or him in my arms and I know that he had passed, I will never stop looking. During this process of re-recognizing his name and his life, your mother was helping you talk to your grandmother. I mean, your grandmother was in her 80s already, Mm -hmm. and your mother had never talked about any of this either. So you were sitting with your mother and your grandmother digging up a past that they both had tried to forget. What was that like? It was was beautiful and heart-wrenching. I think by asking questions, this, you know, granddaughter, this daughter of theirs asking questions, it literally just opened up the doors and the floodgates poured out. And there was a lot of crying in between the, the stories and the regrets and the heartaches and remembering, but also rejoicing that we could celebrate his life together, finally, because our family here was safe. But at that point, when we could remember him for that moment, that period in time, a weird thing happened. Um, a letter arrived from North Korea telling my grandmother that her son, Youngwoon, that she had been searching for all these years, was indeed alive in North Korea. And I remember looking at my grandmother and thinking, saying, asking her, oh my God, aren't you excited? Now you know your question is now finally answered. And she looked at me and she goes, oh my God, I can't believe that my son has been alive all these years and his mother didn't know. And she said to me, you know, do you think he thinks I abandoned him? And that, that was so traumatic for my grandma. The news, the joy of knowing that he's alive actually was not, it hadn't, 
it was a mixed blessing. Her heart was really heavy at that point. And then she picked herself up and decided, I'm going to really try to go see him. So again, she started this massive campaign of trying to get into North Korea to see him. But again, North Korea is not in the habit of um, allowing people to reunite with their families. <laughs> but miracles happen. And I tell you, my family has won two lotteries, two miracles, because in finding him, getting that letter is winning the lottery. But having an opportunity to meet your relatives um, in North Korea is winning the lottery twice. And my grandmother um, got to see her son finally at the border of North Korea and China. We weren't allowed to go into North Korea, but we got as close as we can. And my grandmother met him very close to the border. It was, it was very bittersweet. It wasn't joyful as I thought it was going to be. Um, because my grandmother had envisioned her son as being 16 and youthful and spiritual and beautiful. And when she saw him, he was this decrepit, broken, 62-year-old man who looked older than his mother. That's it for the show. Next week, we will not be here at 2 p.m. on Monday. KPFK is starting its fun drive season. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more radio realities from the urban landscape and more radio from outside of the studio. Special thanks today to Matt Perez for production assistance. Peace.